0: I'd like to begin with a tribute to my wife, Joellen, School of Medicine, class of 66. Um, Her heart was in the mission field. After her surgery residency and surgery board, she often went uh, with her dad, Marion Barnard, class of 44, to South Pacific Mission Hospitals and did surgeries otherwise unavailable in some rather remote locations. And I have In my hand here, plaintiff's exhibit one. Now this thing is the tip of a native arrow taken from the brain of a Solomon Islands man who was injured in tribal fighting. This thing penetrated the right side of his skull, passed through the right hemisphere across the midline, came to rest in the left hemisphere of the brain. And Joellen, who was once told by a male surgeon that women have no place in surgery skillfully removed this thing from the left hemisphere brought it across the midline across the right hemisphere stabilized the cerebral spinal fluid pressure treated the entry wound and sent the patient to recovery well the next day on surgical rounds she found the patient's bed empty which of course is the surgeon's nightmare. You can begin to wonder if the patient expired during the night, but he hadn't. She found him out on the lawn in the sunshine sitting with his family eating breakfast. And a few years later when she went back to that same hospital, uh, that man came several miles through the jungle to thank her for saving his life. And that is what Loma Linda is all about. I so appreciate Dr. Hart's emphasis on mission service in Loma Linda's residency programs. So did Joellen. She passed away on a Sabbath morning in early April of last year and was less spared from seeing the nightmare that the year 2020 could become. Uh, Think about it. Uh, In January, we were a stable nation with a vibrant economy. By year's end, we had seen cities on fire and the government handing out money faster than it could print it. And federal buildings under attack from Portland to Washington, D.C. And a familiar passage comes to mind. The final movements will be rapid ones. And our topic this morning is our moment, our message. So let's open the word. Revelation 14, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel and saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Now in nine mighty verses, Revelation 14 presents a series of messages that lead like a stairway from where we are now, right to the advent. And to set the stage for what we're going to be looking at, let's compare our world with the word pictures of an end time world described in inspiration. Maranatha page 138. Anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law. The spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed are tending to involve the whole world. Anarchy. There's a word laden with images uh, of societal breakdown of angry mobs and dangers even in a quiet suburb. And she says it again in volume nine. The spirit of anarchy is permeating all nations and the outbreaks that from time to time excite the horror of the world are but indications of the pent up fires of passion and lawlessness that having once escaped control will fill the earth with woe and desolation. And now let's think about the world of 2020 and beyond. A pandemic brings our economy to a tire-smoking halt. Churches are empty while liquor stores stay open. Meanwhile, governments that once could fight and win a two-ocean war seem incapable of anything except political speeches. And with that in mind, let's turn to Daniel 12. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. This world is getting ready for something, and now let's get back to Revelation 14, where we began. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel and saying with a loud voice. Revelation 14 verses six through 12 describe a series of progressing truths. And notice I said progressing, not progressive. Those truths are designed to prepare an end time world for the coming of Christ and where do they begin? And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the what everlasting gospel. Our end time messages begin on the foundation stone of the gospel. The heart of the Advent message is Jesus. And if we forget that, if all we do is preach end time issues, everything else we have to say is only words. Now, they're powerful words, to be sure. If we preach only end-time issues without keeping Jesus at the center, we're still probably able to create biblically literate, prophetically aware, and probably more healthy sinners. The central theme around which all of this turns is the gospel. Now, we could at this point nod piously at each other as if we had really resolved the issue. and We could move on. But problem is I'm an attorney and in the law, defining your terms is critical to the outcome of your argument. So let me ask a question, a critically important question. What is the gospel? We've used the term. Now, what is it? Well, buckets of ink have been Uh, spent in books and glossy periodicals trying to explain this, I submit, much of which only complicates what should be obvious. And my thinking is, if we have a question like this, the best thing to do is to skip the commentaries and the commentators and go straight to the word, do our research there, and a really good research entry point is Calvary. Chances are you'll find the answer there. And so it is now, at Calvary, here's this dying thief. He's thrown down on the splintery vertical stipes beam of the cross. His back is lacerated already from a Roman flagellum. He hits that splintery beam, then his arms are yanked out sideways on the horizontal patibulum. A calloused Roman knee comes down on his wrist and somebody produces a couple of spikes. They're about a quarter inch square, about six, seven inches long. And the hammer starts to ring, and then the pain really starts. Because when the head of that spike comes down and compresses the sensory motor median nerve, that victim is going to have electric jolts of pain going up each arm. Now, you felt a little hint of that if you've ever bumped your elbow on the corner of a desk but this time the pain doesn't stop it just keeps on and crucified victims at this point just start to scream and swear they swear at everything and everybody including the emperor there's nothing else society can do to them and for a while these men are cursing even Jesus but then one of them hears from the center cross some words he recognizes baruch atal Halim salach blessed father king of the universe forgive and something happens there is one of these magic moments in which he gets it and he does three remarkable things number 1 He confesses his own unworthiness. Number two. He confesses the worthiness of Christ. And number three. (laughs) Having admitted he doesn't deserve salvation. He asks for it anyway. And gets it. Now I submit that's the gospel. It's just that simple. We can complicate it with polysyllabic theological terms, but it's just that simple. You can preach that in Wall Street or Cannibal Valley, New Guinea, and it's equally applicable either place. So Revelation 14 starts with the gospel where it has to start, but notice something. It doesn't stop there. Now in A.D. 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his theses to the church door at Wittenberg, that was the issue, that was present truth. The Christian faith had lost sight of the fact that you can't work your way to heaven. Church needed a course correction. So that was the issue in 1517, now moved down 500 years to a world in which cities are on fire and disease shuts down the economy and raging voices urge us to rethink everything we have assumed is meaningful about America. And in a world like that, people need to know more because our world is nearing a terminal crisis. Great changes are happening Great events are happening not only on earth, but in heaven. Everything is gearing up for a conclusion of a cosmic war. So now we move on to the second great truth in Revelation 14. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, and <laughs> and saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. God's end time people will deliver a gospel message, but they will also deliver a judgment hour message. And what they say is absolutely unique to Adventism. You're not going to find it anywhere else in the Christian uh, theological world. But it explains something that is otherwise unexplainable. And here's the problem. Sin is a frighteningly tough virus. Once committed, sin breeds effects that roll downstream in time and you lose control over them. Sometimes those effects go on for millennia. Let me give you an example. Abraham's moral lapse with that young lady named Hagar. And we're still living with the result of that act. And the problems it creates are far worse today than they were in the second millennium bc now because of the gospel a sinner can be forgiven but the effects of sin don't go away just because of forgiveness let me give you another example a drunk driver i defended early in my legal career he stayed too long at happy hour Couldn't quite see the center line of the road, veered across it, went head on with a young dad on his way home from work, killed him. Now, the next morning, when my client wakes up in detention and sobers up, is he sorry? Oh, yeah, he's sorry. He's sorrier than he's ever been in his life. Can he be forgiven? Well, if he can't, Calvary doesn't mean anything. But does his forgiveness bring the victim back to life? No, there's still a young mom who's gotta tell her kids why daddy isn't coming home ever. So here's the problem. Heaven has to deal with the effects of sin right up to the end of time. And thus, we are faced with a question, what happens to our sin at the moment of forgiveness? Well, we kind of like to think it just evaporates. It goes away. But the problem is it doesn't because it lives on in the effects that it has created. It doesn't evaporate. It's transferred to somebody. <laughs> somebody carries it. And that, I submit, is First Peter 2. Peter was there. He saw Jesus die. He got it. He got what was happening. And he said, who his own self bear our sin in his body. So our sin is born by Jesus. And I'll say it again. He's the heart and soul of the Advent message. And that includes the judgment hour message. Well, because Jesus bore our sins, even heaven sanctuary would need cleansing. Now. I'm well aware that some people say, well, now, why would that be the case? God doesn't sin. So how did sin get up into heaven? How did it get there? The answer is real easy. If you've ever read 1 Peter 2, (laughs) and if you're really Christ-centered, it got there because he carried it for us. And the Hebrew Sanctuary Service illustrates in a graphic way what, uh, what happens at the end of time. We're all familiar with this. Once a year, high priest goes into uh, the sanctuary, into the most holy place, during this confluence of awesome events, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. He goes into the most holy place. Why? To remove a year's accumulation of sin, symbolically place it, where it belongs on an animal representing Lucifer. I think we're all aware or should be that Yom Kippur is just an illustration that at the end of time, a planet's burden of sad mistakes would be removed from heaven's records and placed on the head of the one responsible for a cosmic war. Now, I know some people say, well, you Advents, when you say that, you make Lucifer your savior. And my response is, oh, no, we don't. We give our sins to Jesus and what he does with him, his business. Well, this was the truth the pioneers of Adventism would begin to understand on the morning of October 23, 1844. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur would occur not on earth, but in heaven. All of which I think introduces an interesting question. How should we live on the day of atonement? Now, in the time of Israel, the entire nation went through a process in which each person searched his or her own heart. The Hebrew word describing that process is anach. It means you just ransack your heart. You search yourself unsparingly. You ask yourself, in what ways may I be out of line with the will of God? And in that time, the Holy Spirit helps in deep self-examination. The Holy Spirit will sometimes bring to our attention things we didn't know are still buried in there. And I can tell you from personal experience, sometimes that is not a pleasant process, but it's a necessary one. In the time of Israel, those who didn't participate in that honest self examination were separated from the nation. And we might ask the question would the same risk of separation apply today for someone who doesn't really get the importance of the Day of Atonement? Fear God and give glory, for the hour of his judgment is come. That's our unique message. And many people, I'm sorry to say some even uh, within or perhaps in past years within Adventism, will respond and say, Wait a second, judgment. Don't talk to me about judgment. That's scary. That robs me of my full assurance. Well, what is the truth of the judgment? Number one, who's your judge? Well, what did Jesus say, as recorded in John chapter 5? For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto whom? Unto the Son. Think about it. You have a brother at the throne. John 3.16 doesn't say God so loved the world that he lent us his Son. He gave him to us. Now he is in every respect divine, I don't mean to question that, but he is also forever a part of the human family. Which means what? You're being judged by a peer. He's been here, he knows the rip current pull of temptation. He knows what it's like to be lied about and beat up may i suggest only he is qualified to judge you (laughs) the father doesn't even try well that ought to be good news enough but it gets even better not only he is not only is he your judge he's something else he's also your defense attorney What John say in 1 John 2, my little children, these things I write that ye sin not. That's the ideal of the gospel. Don't mess with sin. What's it ever done for you except bring you pain and hurt other people? So John says, these things I write that ye sin not. And he goes on and he says, and if, not when, but if any man sin, we have what? An advocate. Now, what, pray tell, is an advocate? That's defense counsel. You're being judged by your defense attorney. Now, if you, heaven forbid, were charged with a crime, go into your lawyer's office one day, and he or she says, I will do everything I can to see that you walk, to you walk out of that courtroom free. <laughs> Time comes for your court appearance. You walk into court, you look up on the bench, and there you see not a guy or a gal in a black nightgown, but you see your defense attorney sitting on the bench. At that moment, would you have a feeling of full assurance? How are you going to lose a case like that? Well, you can do it. There's one way a lot of smart people have figured out how to lose a case like that. Just fire your lawyer. (laughs) Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, but there's still more. Goes on to say, now this interesting thing about Revelation 14, 6 and 7 is it's kind of a run-on sentence. It's separated only by commas. So we start with the gospel. We move to the judgment hour message. And then it goes on to say, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, is there anything familiar with that language? Well, there better be. You've heard it before. Where? In the fourth commandment. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. So, Revelation 14 is plagiarized from Exodus 20, which means if you're not real keen on Sabbatarian observance, you could say, I don't have to worry about that. That's plagiarism. Single sentence, gospel judgment, and now Revelation 14 predicts there will be an end time people who preach a rediscovery of the ancient biblical Sabbath nearly at the same time as the rediscovery of the sanctuary truth, because they're all in the same sentence. So the question we might ask is, why is this Sabbath thing so important at the end of time? If you love the Lord, why not tomorrow? I mean, this, what we're doing here isn't all that easy. It separates us from many wonderful Christian people. I am personally uh, of the opinion that most of God's end time people are still out there in other churches they'll be worshiping tomorrow. I know Catholic people who it is very clear really love Jesus. So why should we make a major issue out of a day? (laughs) Well, think it through. In 1844, when the Sanctuary and Sabbath truths were beginning to be rediscovered, what else was happening along with some disappointed Millerites uh, trying to search in their Bibles, trying to figure out what the 2300-day prophecy really meant? Well, in that very same year, Charles Darwin was doing the first draft of what would become on the Origin of Species. In that very same year, Karl Marx was doing the very first draft of what would become the Communist Manifesto. And just to make it interesting, in that very same year, the first digital message was sent out over a wire by a man named Samuel Morse. Now, without the weekly reminder of creation and Eden and The day that God himself set up to remind us we're here because of intelligent design. This world would become a sitting duck for the theory we're just here because something went bang. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Gospel, judgment hour, Sabbath. But there's still more an end time world needs to know. And Now we come to Revelation 14 verses 8 through 11. (laughs) Now, there are actually from uh, verses 6 through 12 of Revelation 14. There are seven verses with these end-time messages. Over half of them are used by the Lord to explain an end-time global mistake. Before Jesus returns, something really goes majorly wrong on this planet. So very wrong that Revelation 14, 6 through 12 Spends more than half its verses warning about it And uh, describes the problem by using the name of a prehistoric place called Babylon And we could ask why What possible relevance would an ancient Sumerian city have To a world where otherwise rational people are now talking about colonizing Mars Well, think about it. At Babylon, there were at least four major mistakes that I can find. Number one, the people there didn't believe the promises of God. He said there will never be another worldwide flood, and they're responsible maybe there will and maybe there won't. We're not real clear about it. We're not sure we believe you. Now, if you don't believe the promises of God, you got to believe in something. So what's the next logical anchor point for your belief? Self. I'll believe in myself. That leads to problem number three. If I believe in myself, I'm going to have to save myself. So let's get busy with a building program. Let's build a tower that'll get us off this planet. Maybe we can get all the way to Mars. That leads to problem number four. Centuries go by. Mistake number four. Here's this world religious service. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden image, summons the world. He should have known better. He had been given the awesome gift of seeing all of human history right down through the end of time when the two feet of that statue that he saw were interrupted by something coming out of the cosmos. Instead, he decides he's gonna rewrite human history in advance, erects this statute, Statute statue turns it into a religious service enforced by a death decree. Babylon, where global religious conformity was once enforced by threat of death. Now let's go back to Revelation 14 and its mysterious reference to Babylon. And let's kind of unpack that by letting scripture explain itself. Revelation 13, 16, and 17 describes a future in which the nonconformist is embargoed from the marketplace. Well, that's hard to believe, isn't it? In today's world, embargoed from the marketplace, and if that doesn't work, there is a death decree waiting in the background. Revelation 17, 12 reveals an end time world ruled by globalism. The verse says "And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have no power as yet. Well, what do kings represent? They represent a nation, do they not? So John is told in the distant future, at a time distant from your own, there will be ten nations. Why ten? Well, in scripture, 10 repeatedly is used to symbolize everything, everywhere, all over the world. Let me give you three quick examples. Um, in uh, when the Lord speaks morality to the entire planet, how many commandments does he give? 10. On Nebuchadnezzar's image, symbolizing the entire world at the coming of Jesus, How many toes are there on those two feet? Ten. And when Jesus describes an end-time worldwide church as young women awaiting his return, how many young women are there? Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten. Everything, everywhere. With that in mind, go back to the ten kings of Revelation 17 Ten kings, in other words, ten nations, every nation everywhere. And look at what verse um, uh, 12, I think it is, says uh, in Revelation 17, these have one mind. For once in human history, all nations of the world agree on something, and that is globalism. And the issue is religious conformity. Well, we might ask, is that possible? I mean, realistically, is that possible with the world majority that thinks we're here by accident because something went bang? Well, let me share something from the pen of a writer who predicted back when tobacco was routinely prescribed for lung disease. She warned that tobacco was a, quote, most malignant poison who warned that cancer was transmissible decades before doctors Rouse and Bittner demonstrated that cancer could be dietarily transmitted between species. Now, here it is from her pen. Fearful sights of a supernatural nature will soon be revealed. Satan will manifest himself as a majestic being of dazzling brightness. The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. People prostrate themselves. Yeah, I know in today's progressive world, we might ask where fewer and fewer people go to church at all. And cynicism is the uh, grist for late, what passes for late night comedy. One might ask, how could Revelation 14, 8 to 11, with this prediction of a worldwide religious consensus, how could that possibly be fulfilled? But think about it. Think about the description I just read of supernatural manifestations in which people prostrate themselves. For the modern secularist, seeing is believing. You see it. You measure it you believe it. For the religious believer of any faith who already believes in the supernatural, belief will follow easily. And then there is the politician who believes whatever the voters want. Supernatural exhibitions, totally persuasive to everyone, (laughs) unless, unless what? Unless you've been deep in the word. Let me tell you a story. Back when I was, uh, about the time I was in Vietnam, there was an Air Force colonel. It was an F-105 driver. He flew 102 missions over the North Vietnam through the most formidable air defenses on earth at that time. On one mission north of the Red River, uh, his flight augmentation system was shot out. His airplane went into a violent porpoise just 800 feet above the ground. He had only seconds to disable the malfunctioning system before his airplane either yanked itself to pieces or nosedived into a crash. And the only way he could disable that broken thing was to reach behind his ejection seat, find one of 200 circuit breakers and pull it out. He took off his glove, he reached behind where he couldn't see, felt four down and three left and with his fingernail, popped that circuit breaker out and recovered the airplane. Now you might be asking yourself, how did he know where to go for that thing? Well, let me tell you, before every mission, he'd spend two hours in front of a big map on the wall He would fly the mission in anticipation, each point, what could go wrong here? What do I do? How do I get home? He spent hours poring over the aircraft emergency manual memorizing everything. And so when he felt and heard that sickening metallic thud against the hull of his airplane, he could visualize the circuit breaker in a place he couldn't see and barely reach and find the right switch and go on living. Now I got a question for you. What are we, what are Adventists, if not frail beings, hurtling toward home and facing hostile fire? If we really believe there is a God and a devil, if we really believe that four mighty angels are even now struggling to hold back the winds of strife, if we really believe that our goal is to make it home instead of crashing into the world beneath us, and we ought to have our minds buried in the word of God instead of Hollywood. So now we move to Revelation 14, 12, and a description, word picture of God's end time people. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. Yeah, all 10 of them. 90% will get you an A-minus or a B-plus across the street here, but in the plan of salvation, it'll buy you an F. What Revelation 14.12 describes is a generational triumph of obedience. And, you know, one might ask, well, how on earth do they do that? In all of human history, few if any have done it, most of the Bible is a sad recital of human failure. I mean, even people God personally selected and selectively bred, for example, Isaac and Rebekah, Okay? Selectively bred for success, and they failed. Now, may I suggest that the story of Israel's serial failures is a graphic lesson of what what not to do. At the foot of Sinai, here they are awestruck by the presence of El Shaddai. They've seen just a tiny hint of the indescribable energy present at the throne of God, and they babble a promise, all that the Lord has said, we will do. Yeah, sure they will. For 40 whole days, after which they are dancing half naked or worse around a golden calf. May I suggest that the lesson is this, we should never make the Lord a promise that we will do anything. Because I think we do that, we've set ourselves up for failure. We should never make fear or reward our religious motivation, because if we do that, Lucifer's end-time strategy will hammer us with both. The reward of relief, of release from mob pressure, and the fear that if you don't go along with the majority, you and your family will be doxxed and endangered. Are you following me? May I suggest that Joseph illustrates how one deals with those dangerous motivations of fear and reward. He faced them both. I mean, the short-term reward of sex with a willing lady, the danger of what would happen if he said no. Now facing both fear and reward, both motivations operating simultaneously, both motivations which typically drive us even in our religious life. For example, I want heaven and I sure don't wanna burn. Faced with that, what was Joseph's defense? He had a friend he couldn't betray. He loved his Lord, and betrayal was not an option. And so I submit it is with those end time people that are described with (laughs) almost wistful certainty in Revelation 14, 12, who after so So many millennia of human failure finally generationally exhibit what it really means to believe. Here are they that have the faith of Jesus. They have a friend. No, actually better than that. They have a brother at the throne. Betraying him is not an option. Okay, Revelation 14, 12. Now watch history accelerate. The very next verse, some are laid to rest before earth's last madness. Blessed are they that die in the Lord from now on, as it's put in the New King James Version. Some of God's saints are allowed to rest before the world descends into a terminal and ugly crisis. But notice something. They aren't resting long because the very next verse, the whole sky is ablaze with energy. Our little world is wrapped in dazzling light. The whole army of the cosmos is here. And there's silence in heaven for a prophetic half hour of time. And in the middle of that incandescent light, enthroned and crowned, is his majesty. And when he speaks, even the dead can't sleep through it. Our youth sometimes sing. I guess maybe sometimes you may sing it here. Our God is an awesome God. (laughs) And uh, I sometimes wonder if we have an inkling of what we're really saying. Think about it. E equals MC squared. The equation is reversible. Matter can become energy. We've proved that. But energy can also become matter. And with that in mind... Think about creation. Volume eight, Ellen White says, in the creation of our world, God was not indebted to existing matter. Didn't need it. He could speak it into existence. Now then, if 20 pounds of heavy metal can destroy an entire city, how much energy do you think it takes to build a world? Or a solar system or a galaxy. awesome hardly says it. einstein's formula also reveals something about time e equals mc squared c speed is nothing more than distance over time that's how you measure speed so you could rewrite his formula to say e equals mass times distance over time squared. Now you take that thing through about four or five steps of algebraic logic and you can wind up with time on one side of the equal sign and mass on the other, which means if one moves away, the other goes too. Which means what? Time is the byproduct of creation. And the first thing our Lord does, when the material world is in place and time is in place, is take this abstraction called time and build something out of it. A temple made out of nothing but time. It's called the Sabbath. By the way, I haven't said it yet, so happy Sabbath, Shabbat Shalom. (laughs) (laughs) Y para nosotros que hablamos la boca del cielo <laughs> <Feliz Salvador. laughs> This is the day the Lord has made let's rejoice and be glad in it So the advent message ends with the entire sky incandescent our entire planet wrapped in a planet-wide rainbow and time the product of a tiny beachhead on a cosmic ocean dissolves into eternity. And I submit that's Revelation 14. That's the advent message. That's our time, our message. So I close with a question. If not us, pray tell whom? If not us, why? It's a goodly land, and we're well able to go up and possess it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. Dot audioverse.org.